in the gospel reading that we just heard, we have this remarkable moment where Jesus gets in a pretty intense argument with his best friend. And it's all the more remarkable when you read it in context. You see, right before Peter scolded Jesus, and Jesus returns fire with a fierce rebuke, right before that, we had the absolute high point of the book of Mark, the watershed moment. The moment when, Jesus, when Peter, for the first time, realized who Jesus was and said it out loud. You're the Christ. That's Jewish speak. It's code word. You're David's true heir. They were on a walk. Jesus had taken his disciples on a walk, the longest route you could get, take to get from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. They were walking the most out-of-the-way route, apart from the crowds, apart from the cities, apart from the villages, even today by car. You're lucky if you can make this route in an hour. And there's Jesus. He's walking with his friends, his disciples, on this long, ambling hike. And while they're talking about all of these remarkable things Jesus has done, all of these miracles and these teachings, they're talking about it all, and suddenly it crystallizes. The coin drops, and Peter sees it. He sees something that nobody else had seen. He sees Jesus for who he is. You're the Christ. You're the true king of Israel, the final heir of David's throne. You're the one before whom Herod Antipas and all the other would-be Jewish princelings are just shabby little imposters. You're the leader that God promised Israel all of those long centuries ago, those many, many centuries ago. God promised that he would send somebody and through that person, he would deliver Israel from her enemies. And there in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter sees it and he says it. And once that happens... Once Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, notice what happens next. Verse 31, and Jesus began. It's like, now that you've learned basic arithmetic, we can go to the next level. Now I can teach you something that I could not teach you before. Jesus began to teach them this new thing. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this, it says, plainly. And it's at that point that it tells us 
Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Who? The Christ. Pretty gutsy. Pretty disgusting. Right? Have you ever seen a child acting out and utterly disrespecting the parent that loves them and would die for them? Have you ever felt the deep pain and shame of such an illogical moment? Ramped up a thousand times. And then it says, Jesus, notice what it says, seeing his disciples, right? right? So get the scene in your mind. Peter took Jesus to the side to rebuke him, but apparently not far enough to the side so that everybody wasn't watching. Jesus sees everybody watching. The whole scene goes into slow motion. And he does something that you wouldn't expect. What do you expect in this moment from the Lord of compassion? The God we worship is so gentle. He turns on Peter. And he fires at Peter. Loud enough for everybody to hear. The sharpest possible rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Now, can you just imagine for a moment that kid in the grocery store freaking out, scolding his parents and all of the, the, the awkwardness you feel? Could you imagine if you saw that mother then look at that child and say that? What's going on here? I mean, what could drive Jesus? I mean, the G, this painting, this remarkable painting on the front of our worship guide, I look at it, I see compassion and gentleness and kindness. I see the Lord that when I go to him, he receives me like that psalm we said together. You see, Peter had just blurted out, What Satan had been whispering to Jesus from day one. You you can't die. That'll ruin everything. Just keep doing what you're doing. Heal people. Give some saucy teaching. People will get the message. Don't be silly. Don't be so melodramatic. Slow and steady, Jesus. Slow and steady. This thing can work out. And Jesus recognizes this advice for what it is. Even though it's coming through the lips of somebody who's not all bad. In fact, they were the best. Even though it's coming through the lips of one of his closest friends, he recognizes it for what it is. It is the voice of Satan. The one who is always eager to undermine God's plan. And then comes the challenge from which most of us, given half a chance, still shrink. If anyone would get behind me. See, when Jesus said, get behind me, Peter, it's a double entendre. It's not only back off, it's go back to the only place for a follower. Stop trying to lead me. Go back behind me. 
You can't go in front of me where I'm going. And then Jesus turns on everybody else and says, look, if you're going to do this, if you are going to get behind me with all of your nastiness, with all of the ways you've been just as bad as Peter, just as ungrateful and wrong as Peter, just as selfish and arrogant and prideful, if you're going to get back in place behind Jesus, you're going to have to deny yourself. Take up your cross. That's what it takes. That's what it takes to get behind Jesus. Self-denial. If you want to follow Jesus, you can't be a passive spectator. To be a Christian is not something that happens by default or cultural heritage. It's a decision you have to make with the utmost sincerity and resolve to deny yourself. That's the ticket price. That's the price of admission. Most people in our society recognize the value of occasional acts of moderation or self-restraint. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He is not talking about an occasional act of self-restraint. He is talking about a total shift of the center of gravity in your life. A reckless abandonment from yourself to him. Let go of all your attachments. All your agendas. Look at it this way. This was written as best we can tell in the, the 50s or maybe the early 60s of the first century A.D. A time when the group of people who first read this were being crucified because they followed Jesus. It was under the reign of the emperor Nero. He would take Christians, he would dip them in oil, and he would light his garden with them. So they hear these words in the original context. If anybody's going to follow me, he's going to have to deny himself and take up his cross. And there's no tricky translation required. You don't need a preacher to explain it to you. You just look out your window and you get it. It's there. But we live in a different place. We live in a moment in time where we don't see that kind of brutal torture of Christians. And so how easy it is, is it for you and me to forget that self-denial is the ticket price? How easy is it for us as we're amazed at the wonderful story of the Bible about the renewal of all things and our greatest dreams coming true? How easy is it for us in this moment with such a seductive biblical story to forget that the ticket price is self-denial? And that's part of the reason that so many Christians practice fasting. We give up food. Many of you in this room have not eaten today. And, and for many of you, this required self-denial. Your own body was asking you to do something that you said back to your body, no. And it assaulted you. Your imagination, you were thinking of hamburgers and crawfish if you're really holy. Your own body was begging you for food and you can get jittery and a headache and stomach pains and it can be very hard to concentrate. You see, fasting is a spiritual discipline. A spiritual, it's a physical thing that we use to discipline our spirit. 
to remind ourselves self-denial is the ticket price. And don't we need reminders of that? If anybody should practice fasting, it should be Americans. Because we don't, where else are you going to get to pick self-denial? And this is so important, this moment we live in, because it's so easy to refashion Christianity into something safe and comfortable. And then Jesus goes on in verse 35, he tells us, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. But if you lose your life because of me and the message, you'll save it. After all, what use is it to win the world and lose your life? There is so much in this world that is good. He doesn't say here the world's bad. There's so much in this world that is good, and it is good to love it, but it is best loved when we love Jesus more. There is so much in this world that is beautiful, but much more beautiful is the one who made this world. There is so much in this world that is glorious, but more delightful is the one by whom this world was created. Imagine something for a moment with me. Imagine that someone, someone you love very much, imagine that you give them a great gift, the perfect gift. Maybe it's a beautiful piece of jewelry or a pet. Maybe you give them a dog. Whatever it is, it's just right for them. And they love it. But as time goes by, they begin to love it more than you. And suppose it gets worse. Suppose as time goes by, they not only stop loving you, they begin to hate you. They don't think of you as a friend anymore. They think of you as an enemy. Isn't that what happened to Peter? Isn't that what's happened to you and I more times than we want to admit? There's a season of Lent. It's the time leading up to Easter where we relearn the great scandal that lies at the heart of the Christian faith. Christ came to save sinners, only sinners. And so much of the time, we get away with the fiction that we are, after all, deep down, really nice people who don't need salvation. I mean, we're not the best people in the world, but we're definitely not the worst. And Ash Wednesday, today, it's that time when the church smears ashes on our foreheads and forces us to bow down in confession and teaches us to sit quietly and consider our own selfish, cheating little hearts. See, our problem is not that we're hungry. It's that we're hungry for all the wrong things. We, we are hungry for all of the wrong. We need today. We need Ash Wednesday. We need Lent. We need this discipline to develop a taste for the real fruit. The fruit of the tree of life. The fruit of the cross. Following Jesus is... What being a Christian means. And Jesus is, was not leading the disciples on some cute little afternoon hike. Did you think that the kingdom of God 
would mean merely a few minor adjustments to your ordinary life. The ticket of admission is to deny yourself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is so hard to do. It is so difficult to do. But what seems hard is made easy by love. And those of you who love the Lord, you know this. As you go, as you go on the journey to Easter, remember this. It is one thing to carry your cross. It is another to travel with a friend who has borne a cross for us. And secured resurrection and enthronement for us. And he will not bear your cross for you. You take up your cross. But he will walk with you. And he will whisper promises of glory and enthronement. As each of us stumbles our way to lesser Calvary's. And so, while it can be so very hard to follow Jesus, and we will suffer for it, we suffer momentarily. Because one day, death will be swallowed. Even all the deaths you have to die to follow the Lord Christ, those deaths will be swallowed. And the cross itself will be crucified. And when Christ returns, the crosses you bear will be nailed to the fear of God for all time. Let's pray.